Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Welcome once again to dinner. Um, I'd like to um, thank you all once again for coming. Um, it's been a great event so far, and um, I hope you've all found it useful, interesting, and entertaining. And I'd like to welcome Mike Muller, um, who is the, one of the founders and the current CTO of ARM, to come and give you a short pre-dinner address. I think he may touch on the Internet of Things, but he wasn't quite sure when I asked him five minutes ago. Uh, so um, let me hand you over to Mike without further ado. Thank you. Mike. <clears throat> okay, good evening. Thank you. Yes, I, I was asked to talk about a little bit of the history of the electronics industry and its impact on IoT, and I realised at that point it meant I'd got old when somebody's asking me to, um, to give a little bit about history. So I thought I'd start at the beginning of consumer of electronics for me. I was born in the 50s. Um, I'm not going to say which year in the 50s, but um, it, 1952 for me is the kind of the start of consumer electronics. It's the first American transistor-based consumer product. It had one transistor and two valves, and I think quite appropriately, it was a mobile device, it was a hearing aid. And the other thing that happened in 1952 was the world's first um, consumer, well, commercial uh, mainframe computer, Lion's uh, Coffee House, who uh, took research out of uh, Cambridge University and commissioned them to actually build them a computer system, um, which went at a staggering, I think quite impressive, 500 hertz. Um, had, had nearly 6,000 valves uh, and consumed about 30 kilowatts. Um, and of course, um, that came out of Cambridge University, and I went to Cambridge University in 1977. Of course, 77 is an important year because that was the world's first real single-chip microcontroller. So that was kind of the start of the embedded industry for me. Um, and, you know, the next, I think, memorable date after 77 was 1982, which is um, when the first PC was launched. And there was something that changed, uh, changed the world. Um, of course, if you were paying attention, you'd have noticed a year later a more significant event, which is 1983, the Motorola Dynatac, the first world's mobile phone. Now, that was actually the important event. So, 83 was really a world of kind of analog meets digital you still had your notebook, pencil and paper. I was buying Jamaican import vinyl. Um, it, was, it, was, it, was a, it was a real analog world. Um, although the launch of you know, applications, Lotus 1, 2, 3, kind of showed you what the future was. And of course, the real significant event in 1983 is that's when um, we started work on the first ARM processor. So um, I have been in the electronics industry for some time. And I think, you know, roll forward another 10 years, you get to 93. Uh, and for me, that's the tipping point in, in, in the digital age because that was the launch of the first DVD. So media finally had gone digital. Game, first Game Boy, that's gaming had gone. First Nokia GSM, real kind of volume phone. The first ThinkPad. Um, and the Apple Newton, which was the first ARM-based um, personal digital assistant, one of those pen interface um, computers. And of course, the first commercial web browser, Mosaic. 
But again, if you'd been paying attention a year later, 1994, you'd have all put your money into Amazon. <laughs> so go forward 10 years, you get to 2003. I think that's when the world went unplugged. Um, it's the first uh, GPS navigation system from TomTom. Tom. Um, iPod and iTunes finally kind of did for the music industry what had been coming for a long time, and the first BlackBerry. But again, if you'd been paying attention a year later, you'd have put all your money into Facebook. <laughs> so that takes you to 2013, if we go forward another 10 years. And at that point, uh, Samsung launched the Galaxy Note, and um, I sit there wondering what I've done with my life for 20 years because you take Apple Newton, pen, black and white screen, colour logo, and you then have the Samsung Note. It's a colour screen and a black and white logo and a pen. And, you know, what's changed? Like two millimetres difference in size on the screen, that's it. So that's 20 years of my life has got me back to the beginning. Um, and I kind of wondered, well, what's the innovation? What's the difference between the Apple Newton and the Galaxy Note? And I kind of scratched my head and decided there is some innovation there. Um, the Newton had infrared, IRDA, as its communication protocol. Galaxy Note has wireless. The wireless revolution is true innovation across the whole value chain. Um, it, you know, Galaxy Note has MEMS technology in it, and I certainly look at kids today, and you, know, you pick up a device and you do that, you expect something to happen, don't you? It's changed the way people interact with things. So I think that's true innovation. The whole CCD camera has changed how people interact. I have a few photographs of when I was a child. My kids now have everything, everywhere. It, it complete change again. Um, some people say apps is the revolution. I, I don't think it's apps as software is uh, innovation. The real innovation in apps versus Lotus 1-2-3 is you paid for Lotus 1-2-3 and apps appear to be free. It's a business model change that actually is the innovation there. And, uh, you know, certain amount of media work done as well. And people would say process technology. I have my doubts about the innovation in process technology. I think that's coming now as we see uh, the slowdown in Moore's Law and the real challenges ahead. I remember from three microns, apparently one micron was going to be the threshold. But this time around, I think 10 nanometers really is a physics challenge and there will have to be innovations to fix that. Um, it's all about the power. It's always been the power. Arm was low power in the beginning. It's low power today. Um, I, I did a talk a few years ago, 2006, where I said, well, you look at Moore's Law, you can see it's slowing down. It's quite clear that um, by the time we get to 2014, so I was kind of predicting it forward uh, eight years, we'd be on 22 nanometers. And the problem, I said, was we'd only be able to use quarter of the chip. Because if you looked at the number of transistors, that was following Moore's law, the power per transistor wasn't scaling at the same rate. So if you made them go faster, you had more of them, the chip was going to take more power. You could only use about a quarter of them. And so I thought, looked through this talk and I went back to it and thought, well, I was obviously wrong, wasn't I? Because, you know, here we are with about 22 nanometer technology chips and they're about the same size as they used to be. And all the transistors are there and all the transistors are used. I got it wrong. It's not a quarter. And I thought, no, I can't, 
I've got it wrong. That's, that's, that can't be right. So I looked at it, and then you look at the average power per SOC, and it used to be around 200 milliwatts, and then it went to 500 milliwatts. And lo and behold, you look at a high-end mobile phone, and it's now around two to three watts. So um, what we've done is we've actually have up the power, and we've filled the form factor. You know, with, 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 with something like an iPad or a, any of those tablets, you can get about five watts. And that is a thermal limit of the device. And so I think as we go forward to 10 nanometers, um, I still think there's a challenge because if you use all the transistors on the process technology we'll have in another eight years, then you'll only be able to turn on eight of them because those products can't get any hotter than they are today. So it's always been about the power. It always will be. And if you look at the programming styles, I've looked at you know, the first ARM mobile phone made by Nokia um, in 1998. It was an embedded project. It was ARM, an assembly language, and a DSP, and manual partitioning between the two of them, done by a small number of experts. You look at a Galaxy Note, and yes, somebody's built a whole application framework on top of it, but under the hood, it's an ARM and a GPU. It's got manual partitioning between C++ and RenderScript and OpenCL. I'm not sure the programming environments have actually moved on that far, far for those kind of low-end challenges. So, of course, you're intelligent people. Um, you know, what's 2014 about? Well, people would say it's IoT, isn't it? And that's what you are paying attention to, and that's why you're here. In 10 years' time, I think I'll rewrite this script, and I'll be talking about plastic electronics and 3D printing. But um, for the moment, we'll go as IoT of the big thing for 2014. And the question is, is there anything new about IoT, or is it just the best uh, marketing exercise we've ever had in the electronics industry to reband embedded control and machine to machine. Nobody writes about it except some of the press here. You turn it into IoT and the economist wants to run an article on it. So um, is there anything really different? And, and, and I think there is, and it's about the I in IoT. And it is the internet, but it's not I think the internet as you may think about it. It's not, you know, my light switch or every light switch is connected to the cloud, is self-aware and can tweet how it's feeling. Those might be things you want to build, but that's not what makes it interesting. What makes it interesting is the way that that's being put together. And if you look at the internet, it's all about open standards and layering of technologies. And those layering of technologies has actually allowed it to evolve. It's moved on, it's changed, the underlying protocols have moved with that, and it's scaled. And that's something that comes from true architecture and how, how that internet is built. And I think we're going to have to follow the same approach as you go to the Internet of Things with tens or hundreds of billions of devices. It needs good architecture underpinning it to move it on. Now, a lot of that comes from the Internet as it is today, we don't have to go back to the beginning and start again. It can build on that. But as we move forward, we have to solve those problems in kind of seamless, secure, simple way to actually allow people to build these kinds of devices. And there are lessons from the internet because if you start with the internet, it used to be something called AOL. Prodigy, CompuServe, right? It was the internet through dial-up, through walled gardens, and it was a proprietary world, and it didn't scale. And the web took the internet 
added in all of those layered technologies on top of that, and that's what allowed it to scale and innovation. And you know, Facebook wouldn't have happened in the CompuServe world because the execs wouldn't have thought that that was an interesting application. And even if they did, half of their user base would have been on a different server and they would never have gone to that bulletin board. It wouldn't have worked. So we need to find a way of opening that world up. And it's about taking verticals and how do you turn them into horizontals. And you need those horizontals to be able to have multiple suppliers. Otherwise, the Internet of Things is going to be these silos of unconnected worlds. And that, while a good business model to start with and a good business model in the future, won't scale to the hundreds of billions of devices that people are talking about. So I think if you look at some of those underlying technologies, smart cities, you know, basic wearables, home automation devices, they have a lot in common. They need the same OSs. They need the same COM standards. There's some differentiation. Do you want Wi-Fi? Do you want Bluetooth LE? doesn't matter. There are fundamental building blocks of the same. And I think the industry needs to come together and push forward those standards to make it easy and scalable. And you know, it's not all there. You, we need to be proactive about it. And you can't just take all of the web work and go, we're going to run that on a tiny microcontroller. So, so you know, some of us got together and created the thread consortium because there were parts of getting IP and web to the edge that didn't scale properly. So by bringing together a new community, you can establish new standards and move on. But they have to be open standards. This isn't going to be a proprietary world. So I think we can leverage and learn from the internet. We can move the world forward. And IoT is an interesting opportunity. It has to be scale, has to be open, has to work on open standards. And, you know, our role as ARM, I think, is, you know, we're the guys that make the little data available so that other people can go and do this big data thing. And big data is where the money is, the analytics, the advertising, the targeting, the applications that are sold to consumers. And I think what's interesting about IoT is that's not just a business opportunity in itself. It's like the internet. It's going to fundamentally disrupt business models. It's going to change the way you buy things, whether it's you know, monitoring your tires and paying for tires by the mile rather than purchasing them, whether it's insurance companies you know, using your data in a different way to dynamically adjust what their rates are. It fundamentally changes what the business models are. That's what makes IoT interesting. It's not the hundreds of billions of devices at the bottom of it. It's the, it's the way it will fundamentally change what business is on top of that. And with that, I'd like you all to please enjoy your meal. <laughs>